There will be spoilers ahead. Lots of spoilers, so be careful, won't you? It's so foggy, so hard to see. Wait, wait, down there. Yes, yes, it's my hometown, Frostbite Falls, but everyone seems so sad. What's going on there? There, there are tumbleweeds in the streets, people sobbing on the street corners. What could this be? Oh, oh, ghost of movies past, tell me, why did you bring me here? What am I supposed to see? No, no, this can't be. You can't be showing me this. Why here? Why now? Oh, agony! Oh, sharp pain! To see the world like this! To see a world without Max Mike movies! No! No, indeed. <laughs> We're here. Wake up, digest that small piece of beef, and settle <laughs> in. We've got a heck of a show this time around. I mean, Don't this wait. week. And we're all bedecked out to do it. Over there, buttered rum in one hand, stogie in the other, and mince pie in the third? Is that spirit of holiday heaving, I mean giving, Max Tosox Levine. What are we getting this year, Max? Fa la la la. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad I unwrapped that. And me, I'm just nibbling on my favorite dainties, which sounds terribly dirty. I am Mike. Uh, where's the receipt for that loose? Sure, it's just past that big holiday thing, but we can still be in the mood, and what a mood it is. Grrr! Because this week, as part of the series Monochrome, we're looking into that TV staple, It's a Wonderful Life. Is this just a bowl of schmaltz, or is there more to this old favorite than meets the eye? Well, before we get to that, we get to this. Poll question. Christmas schmaltz. <laughs> I think I found out that schmaltz is actually rendered chicken fat. <laughs> it is. It, it's it's pretty gross, quite honestly. <laughs> yeah, but you make great latkes in it. You do. Last episode, we asked if the movie trope of men dressing up as women is still funny, appropriate, or was it ever funny? Y'all had a lot to say. Boy. Nick yep. Hoffman said, quote, other than the pepper pots, I've never really been a fan, end quote. Woo! What a thing to say! Woo! Woo! <laughs> Thanks, Nick. Benjamin Carl offered, quote, As with most humor, the success of this trope is predicated on generating incongruity between what is expected and what actually happens. In Disney's Robin Hood, it works because Robin and Little John are prototypically masculine. Thus, the delta between expectation and reality is high, increasing the likelihood of a jocular reaction. As degentrification becomes normative beyond certain subcultural contexts, the effect of this trope will decline. Consider Catherine Hepburn turning heads by wearing pants, whereas it is generally accepted across a wide cultural spectrum now. That is to say, it depends. End quote. Depends wow. welcome indeed. To our, welcome to our TED Talk. Wow. <laughs> yes, uh, Mr. Call is now a high school English teacher. Did could you guess on that one? Not really. He's using words a lot of high school students would not know. That's true. But thank you for the thesis, Javi. Yeah. Okay. Strap down, strap in, and strap up. Okay. Steve Kellner's thesis was next. Quote. Deep knee bends. Yep. <laughs> I think it's possible, but the trope of being funny just because that man is wearing a dress is not sufficient. I agree with Benjamin Carl that the gender associations of clothing have decreased markedly in recent years. Women can wear any external male clothing without comment, and it's starting to switch the other way as well, though given that our society has an imbalance between men and women, it's still hardly societally accepted for men to dress as women than the reverse. The oh, pepper man. pots in Monty Python were mostly funny because of the characters, who were also often deliberately awful in appearance and action rather than particularly feminine. I think that the person behind it could have been almost irrelevant, though I'm sure it added a little friction to British audiences. I think there's also an element there of the humor of low-budget or screw productions that don't have enough women to play women, something they addressed directly in one skit, if I recall. Similarly, Bugs Bunny dressing as a woman to fool Elmer is funny because Elmer is too stupid to see that it is a <laughs> rabbit, not a man, or even a woman. Hey, sometimes he was pretty convincing. I'll say. Woo-hoo. Made me feel funny. <clears throat> uh, the case <laughs> has been made that Bugs is really pretty gender fluid himself, which I could accept despite the occasional female bunny. 
I haven't watched Victor Victoria in a while. It might be worth seeing if it resonates with the current generation, which I think it mm. might, as it kind mm. of sends up multiple tropes at once. I think I've seen a show where the surprise factor came into it. You know, the old lady turns out to be Sherlock Holmes kind of thing, which is less about funny and more about exacerbating the surprise factor. Not only is it someone you didn't expect, it isn't even the same sex, end quote. Wow, that is a lot of answer. <laughs> you said sex. <laughs> <laughs> Package. Thanks, yeah. Steve. George Saulnier gives us a simple quote, not to me, end quote. Thanks, George. Wow, we sort of got the long and the short of it there. Yeah, speaking of the long, <clears throat> Dave dropped okay. this volume. Yeah, speaking of strapping. Quote, I think you have loaded your question with a value judgment. Once you say that it's a trope, you are saying that the writer screwed up and that you subjectively didn't find it funny. I believe transvestites can be funny, yes, but wearing women's clothes is not the joke. For me, whether a movie is good or not always starts with the script. I see no reason why a writer of comedy or serious films should be prohibited from exploring the differences between the sexes by having a character try to pass as either sex. And more and more, we are being told that gender should be more ambiguous, so such stories should be more appropriate now, not less, if you get the themes right. A trope, by definition, is superficial and does not have a deeper theme, so that is why I oh. think your question includes a value judgment, end quote. Oh. I'm going to interject uh, here to say that both yeah. Max and I pointed out today that we meant nothing negative or positive yeah. by using the word trope to its yeah. David Little group. trope is not the same thing as a cliché, which I must give Dave credit for. He actually checked out and posted a link about that, and he acknowledged that. So, then he goes on. Oh, yes. Yeah, there's, oh, there's more. <laughs> Quote, I remember Some Like It Hot as being a very funny movie, and it has a lot of good lines that have nothing to do with Jack Lemmon's transvestite situation, and a bunch that have to True. do with his sense of inadequacy due to his inability to emulate Marilyn Monroe's level of sexual attractiveness. Have not seen the movie in years, so no idea whether I would find it funny still. But a younger me felt that if the script was good enough that you could replace all the actors even Marilyn, and still wind up with an entertaining show if you did it right. There's always some luck in show business, but seeing different yeah. people try out the same role is one of the pleasures for the audience. I liked Mrs. Doubtfire when it came out. That movie works, if it works, because the audience believes that he loves his kids so much that he would invent a persona to be with them. Have not seen the movie in years, so no idea whether I would find it funny still. I doubt it. I have no memories, good or bad, of Tootsie. Victor Victoria was a good story. There have not been as many that involved women dressing as men, but there are some. I have no idea whether Dr. Frankenfurter was supposed to be funny or not. Not. Church no, Lady was not. funny, but not because of the transvestite aspect, but because of her references to, ooh, Satan. Well, and of course, she was that special. Monty Python dressed in women's clothes a lot. Hello, Mrs. Premise. Hello, Mrs. Conclusion. Crying Game wasn't funny, but Billy Crystal singing about it was. End quote. <sighs> That was a that was wow. a great answer, Dave. Thanks, so Dave. Much. You really put a lot of work into this one. Thank Ooh. you. So that was no, right? No, never mind. <laughs> I don't remember, but yeah. While not answering the question, Harry McCracken offered, "quote There's a new musical adaptation of Some Like It Hot on Broadway that I saw last oh. week. It diverges from the movie in numerous ways to reflect evolving attitudes about gender, including changing the ending." End quote. I wonder to what. I don't know. That would be really interesting to see. Thanks, Harry. Seriously. Yeah. Daniel Howell wrote, quote, never thought it was funny, probably even less so now, end quote. Thanks, Dan. Good direct. Yeah. Echoing earlier opinions, Aaron Perez posted, quote, only when Bugs Bunny does it, end quote. Uh, <laughs> Bugs Bunny indeed. Indeed. Thanks, Packy. Random listener Val Coons wrote, quote, <laughs> completely depends on the reason for it and how it's handled. I love La Caja Folle, yes, I mean the original French movie, not the American remake, and Victor Victoria, for instance. I don't think of Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon as transvestites in Some Like It Hot, as they were only disguising themselves to hide from gangsters. I would never think of the Monty Pythons as transvestites when they are playing women either. To me, they're just filling in parts as they're an all-male troupe. Men playing women in the theater has been happening since the beginning. It's never good or right if it's been made fun of. End quote. Well, transvestitism is a whole other thing indeed. Thanks, Val. Yeah, true. Richard Tatum, still inventor of the Tatum, shortly stated, quote... <laughs> Kind of depends on how it's used, end quote. Well, he does have a point. Thanks, yeah, Richard. Yeah. And lastly, from up in DeFro's Nort, we have Vince, oh, yeah. who gave us, Good quote, day. Dressing men up as women is a mixed bag. 
Monty Python doing drag barely registered as drag for me as the characters were just funny. Divine was a man who specialized in female roles, as he used to say. I am not really into drag queens and in the past found them pretty offensive and insulting towards women. In more recent years, they seem to have become almost like clowns. Just a guy in a dress isn't funny to me, but the character they are playing might be. It isn't automatically offensive either. I guess the context is everything. Camp humor is described as the lie that tells the truth sometimes, and I think that cross-dressing can be used that way, end quote. Thanks, Vince. Or is it snowy? Is it? Is it? As always, our listeners have given us tons of great stuff to talk about. Max, yeah, stop being smarter than us. <laughs> it starts out really that way. annoying that way. Max, what would you like to add to this little debate? I gotta say, I'm afraid I gotta temporize a little. It kind of depends. It's true. It really is about the context. It's also about sort of how extreme it is. It's funnier if you have a particularly visibly physical, a man who has was very visibly masculine. Mm-hmm. You know. My my favorite example of that recently was watching Channing Tatum dressed as Britney Spears lip syncing <laughs> Oops I Did It Again. You know, he's in the Catholic schoolgirl outfit and everything. And it's hilarious because Channing Tatum has an extremely masculine face and is not going to be mistaken for a woman. Hmm. The idea was funny. The idea can be funny, uh, again, if it's done properly, but it can't be the only thing. It can't be like, hello. Here is a man in a dress. Please <laughs> laugh at him. Like, that just doesn't really work. I mean, okay, it works for me, apparently, but uh, what, what about you? What do you what, how does it uh, take you? Do you think it works? Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm sorry. Point. This is one of those infantile responses I have. People who know me know that I have this thing for fart jokes. Yes, I know. <laughs> and the sad thing is, is that if I see them in, like, if they're overused, if they're like it's the thing in a movie, I it, I don't like it. It's not funny. If yeah. a character just farts in a movie, I will die laughing just because I think it's funny. Um, there is something to me really just inherently funny about putting a guy with hairy legs and a broad jaw and whatever into a dress because it's pretty obvious that the guy has no idea how to wear the dress and. Be, has no idea what it takes to portray himself as a traditional female. True. So I, I do find that funny. Now, here's the problem, of course, <laughs> is that as gender roles have been examined, re-examined in current times, this might end up being offensive to somebody. That being said, it's so different now because we've got tons of people that are crossing the border. I mean, women wearing pants has been a thing forever. Why women shouldn't have worn pants in the first place, I'll never understand, but whatever. I'm sure they wore skirts because men told them to. But they still don't get pockets. Which is, ugh. So dumb. But I get people like Harry Styles, for example, is really crossing Uh, that that boundary. Because Harry Styles, to me, never comes off as traditionally feminine or effeminate, but he wears a lot of clothes that are traditionally thought of as being more feminine and he just doesn't seem less masculine because of it. So he's really, if he's somebody to look at, to go, wow, I guess I don't understand the difference between these two things. And let's face it, masculinity and femininity are mostly social constructs. They don't really have to do anything to do with anything. The visible, yeah, the behavior in the, in the wardrobe, that is, that's purely social construct. I, I have to say, I mean, it's, it, it, things are changing. Mm-hmm. You now see uh, men wearing, wearing skirts, Sometimes it works, i got to say. I've seen men wearing skirts, and the ones who are just walking around like, I'm comfortable, I like feeling the wind up there. (laughs) (laughs) Who doesn't? (laughs) They look fine, and there's nothing funny about it, but you can see men who wear wear, wear skirts sometimes, and all they're doing is walking around, and you can just see in their face, I'm wearing a skirt, I'm wearing a skirt, I'm wearing a skirt. Yeah. And they look awkward and uncomfortable. Well, and then there's this whole thing with kilts, right? Now, because kilts have become a thing, like mostly at the Ren Fair. But, and here's where a thing where bigger guys have it over skinnier guys. Skinnier guys do not look good in kilts. They just don't. Bigger guys uh, do. Don't know noticed. what it is. Okay. It, it just is. But you'll see them just perfectly fine. Yeah, of course, maybe they have on a Ren shirt or whatever. <laughs> but they're just standing there like, yeah, whatever, I'm wearing a kilt. And it, you can actually be a bro in a kilt. It works. Well, so, 
you go go over to to uh, the Highlands in Scotland and try to tell <laughs> some guy in a kilt who's carrying a caber that he looks feminine and see how long you last. Yeah, well, it does tend again again tend to be the guys who can lift telephone poles. Yeah, I'm gonna oh. toss this. <laughs> sure, that's a game. You, yeah, something that people brought up. I I wanted to uh, ask you about. Can you think of any movies where the comic? Uh, central thing is we we there are a bunch where it's a man dressing up as a woman. Can you think of any where it's the other way around? Victor a woman Victoria. dressing up as a man. Oh, Victor Victoria. Well, that's a good one. The other one I thought of is the associate, the one with Whoopi Goldberg. Oh, I didn't see it. Yeah, she's a lawyer who isn't being taken seriously, so she invents a male counterpart and dresses up as him. Well, well Yentl. That's not a comedy. Oh, comedy. Well, I, yeah. it depends on how you watch it, isn't it? A yells go Yentl. I don't know if I've ever heard anyone say, oh, that wacky Barbara Streisand movie, Yentl. But uh, anyway. Yeah, yeah, I don't know about comedy. Um, there, I mean, there's white chicks. <sighs> uh, well, yeah, but that's men dressed as women. Right, yeah, yeah. The other way around, I know there's been serious ones. There was one that Hilary Swank did. Oh, 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 Boys Don't Cry. Is that what it was? Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, that, uh, that is not a, not a comedy. I mean, Shakespeare does it all the time. He's got women dressed as men. Well, and of course, back then, wasn't it illegal for women to be on yeah, the stage? Yeah, you could not. Ha- yeah, but that was sort of the joke because he would also have the character. Yeah. Be, you would often have a man pretending to be a woman pretending to be a man. Yeah, because it's, it's still it's a guy dressed as a woman. I was going to say, yeah. there's that Dunkin' Donuts commercial. <laughs> <laughs> it's time to make the donuts. Do you make donuts fresh like Dunkin' Donuts? No, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> so it's weird because as society changes and some people wake up and realize that all of these things are only these things because we say they are. There's nothing yeah. inherently feminine about that thing except that we say it is. Like pink. If you go to, uh, to Italy, a lot of young guys wear pink shirts there and they are not effeminate or gay not or that anything. Lo- not that long ago, pink was a masculine color. Because red was a masculine color, you would dress your kid. You, know, you want your boy to be manly. You dress him in red, and they didn't have color color fast dyes, so the red clothes would turn pink over time. Yeah, no one thought anything about it. Yeah. So, uh, well, in any case, uh, you know, you folks gave us time to talk about more and, than yep, usual. Thank so, you so, thank much. you for your for your great answers. You really do yes. have great stuff to our show. But now it's time to put this aside and change the subject to this week's poll question. What is your favorite holiday movie? Doesn't have to be Christmas, can be any holiday at all. St. Swithin's Day, Arbor Day, heck, even Mac and Cheese Eve. It's St. Swithin's Day, Charlie Brown. Yeah, uh-huh. Or Sadie Hawkins. Uh, <laughs> do tell us, and we'll tell you how at the end of the show, right after the tequila ad. But now, this. The facts. Budget. A whopping $3.18 million for 1946. Wow. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Take $3.3 million, but this oh. is a long game. Yeah. Mm. Break a window, make a wish. Sure, <laughs> Jimmy Stewart could wing that rock through a window, but Donna Reed? Oh. Not a chance. The director hired a sharpshooter to take out Reed's window when she threw, except... Reed had been on her high school baseball team and had no trouble hitting her window when the time came. Huh. Yeah. Her. Jimmy Stewart was going through some rough times. Newly back from his service in World War II, Stewart was eager to start taking roles again, but wasn't getting any calls. He was suffering from some serious PTSD effects from his over four years service. Younger men were getting his parts, and this was the first role he got after returning. He was 37 at the time. There's a great quote from an article by Nina Metz that describes some of what this meant to Stewart's performance. Quote, He's in his living room and he's throwing things and screaming at his kids and his wife and children look at him like, who is this man? Who is this monster? And that is so reflective of what millions of families faced looking at these strangers who came back from the war with this rage. Stewart played it beautifully. He just let it out, end quote. In the end, it was Lionel Barrymore that convinced Stewart to take the role. When George is praying in the bar, he starts sobbing. That's not acting. That was, again, part of Stewart throwing himself into the role and likely feeling some of the leftover effects of his service. Oh. The gym floor, the one that opens up to a pool below, it's not only the real floor of Beverly Hills High, it's still in use today. Oh. Bedford Falls oh. is a set. 
It's no, over 300 no, feet long. No, it's not. It lives in my brain. <laughs> well, in your my brain dreams. Is, your brain is 300 feet long, encompasses 75 stores, real trees, and nearly every season. It was yes, it four does. acres in size. Wow. When is snow not snow? When it's shaved coconut? No, when it's oh. fomite, soap, and water. Think my what you will, guess. it won this film its only Academy Award. Best snow, okay. For best snow. <laughs> <laughs> of all his films, this was director Frank Capra's favorite and George was Stewart's favorite role, though Harvey was his favorite to film. This, this was Donna Reed's favorite of hers, too. Yeah, the name Capra, it's Italian for goat, which is why the Martini family includes a goat. Nepotism! <laughs> that ear slap, so realistic. That's because it was. Actor H.B. Warner, who played Mr. Gower, wasn't exactly sober when the scene was filmed, and he oh, actually boy. hit the actor playing the young George Bailey. Oh, His you got to hit someone hard to make their ear bleed. And it really did, too. This was Donna Reed's first starring role, but she'll be back in Nick at Night favorite, The Donna Reed Show. Who names their kid Zuzu? <laughs> Apparently the name came from a brand of ginger snap cookies, Zuzu Ginger Snaps, which is also why George calls her his little ginger snap later in the movie. Sure, that Still cruel. Blaine's everything. Yeah. Yeah. In the original script, there was no Mr. Potter. Instead, echoing uh. many D&D games to come, George is shown a reality with an evil George TM, whom he has to fight. The bad ooh, ooh, George... Does he have a little goatee? I don't know. It wasn't sure. filmed. The Bad George is thrown from Bedford Falls Bridge. Oh, that would not have worked. This film was noted by the FBI as adding to communist infiltration into the motion picture industry. Well, See, duh. By portraying bankers as bad, that means communism. No. Not true. Also, really. the building alone is kind of a collectivist uh, financial institution. Sure. I mean, yes, but... Sure. I'm sure the first thing that happened after this movie came out, people went, we want communism. <laughs> <laughs> Did they watch the movie? Never anyway. Uh -huh. Jimmy the Crow. Yes, Uncle Billy's pet crow is a bona fide star. He has an <laughs> IMDb page and has starred in dozens of movies. He was the crow in The Wizard of Oz that lands on the scarecrow. Jimmy. Sure, haven't I shown you my Jimmy the Crow fanfic? I have his first baseball card. Ernie and Bert. Totally named after characters in this film, except they weren't. Oh. Those closest to the Muppets, except Jim Henson, whom we can't ask, recall that the names were given to the puppets because they resembled an Ernie and a Bert. Though cited as one of Henson's favorite movies, no one can tie these characters to those. They are in my head. Yes, your head cannon, which is filled with dud. <laughs> <laughs> with dud? How do you feel something with dud? I don't know, but you managed it. This uh, is the last film appearance of Carl Alfalfa Switzer. Alfalfa from the Our Gang Little Rascals. He has quite the short history, and it's worth looking up. He's the young man who was originally speaking to Mary Hatch at the prom and who opens the gym floor. And really, ton tons more of who could yeah. we have seen in such and such a role, etc., etc. Max, do you have any other trivia parts you wanted to add here? Uh, just that Frank Capra apparently hated that this was considered a Christmas movie. He's, you know, he was like, but like 20, 30 minutes of it at most takes place at Christmas. It's not a Christmas movie. Sorry, Frank, you're wrong. Yeah, um, it starts Christmas that's, Eve and it ends Christmas Eve. Um, that's pretty much it. It's a Christmas Eve sandwich. Well, we do have a show to do, so now the... Um, plot and uh, yep. don't write in i left a lot of things out i had yeah. to yep <laughs> angels this film is lousy with angels some of them deadbeats don't even got wings can you believe it this one angel this clarence wants to earn his wings to do so he's given a rough case one george bailey a man who is about to come to the end of his rope and attempt suicide which i will do if i keep doing his voice <laughs> merry Thank christmas you. suicide Thank you, Barney. yeah <laughs> But before attempting to help this nobody, it's thought best that Clarence get to know George inside and out. So we see him when he's a kid, playing in the snow with his buddies and his younger brother. George, eventually played by Jimmy Stewart, ends up saving his brother when he falls through the ice, though losing hearing in one ear because of it. Later on, we see good boy George save his boss, Mr. Gower the Druggist, from making a dire mistake that could have meant the death of one of his client's kids. It's a secret George will keep for the rest of his life. And that life will be spent abroad, in foreign lands, where he'll grow up to be a famous architect, responsible for bridges, dams, and skyscrapers. Or he'll end up saddled with the family business, a nickel-and-dime operation that builds homes on loan for the town's less fortunates. 
George grows up working that business until his brother Harry is old enough to take over and George can go to college, except it never works out that way. His father suddenly dies, leaving George holding the strings, the reins, something like that. Old Man Potter, played by Lionel Barrymore, owns nearly everything in town except the building and loan, and with the death of George's father, it looks like he'll get that, too. But on his way out to his honeymoon, having married boyhood sweetheart Mary, played by Donna Reed, he gives an impassioned speech to the board members that ends up not only saving the business, but sealing his fate as well. Everyone seems to be getting ahead but George, though the work he does means comfort and happiness to those around him. Finally, one fateful day, as if there hadn't been enough already, a mistake happens that allows Mr. Potter to finally stub out the spark of the building and loan. George, at wit's end, considers suicide the only way out, and the world is better off without him, wife, kids, and all. About to jump off the town's bridge into an icy river, Clarence finally shows up, jumps first, knowing George will then jump in to save him instead. From there, Clarence is able to show George a world without him, convincing him of his worth and his value in it, and lots of other things. The end. Uh. The film. Well, let's. Uh, Why well, we usually start with okay. the acting? Hang on, oh, I got. I, I do have to say something. Here it comes. I get the idea behind this, and most of the things where Clarence says, "Oh, look, you weren't here, so this didn't happen, and that didn't happen." Okay, most of it, Mr. Gower. That's fine. You know, the, the building the houses. When Harry falls through the ice, mm-hmm. there are like ten other kids standing <laughs> there. Are you telling me that only George would have gone in to save him? The others would have just gone, oh, look, Harry's drowning. How about that? No, oh, yeah, that Come happens. on! Well, I don't think you noticed, Max, but Harry was a good deal younger, about four year young, years yes. younger than those other kids. Yes. He had no friends that were his age, so when he went that day, he went alone. I don't think so. <laughs> Well, he would the part have been eight that, years old. He would not have gone out there alone. They wouldn't have let him. I, to me, the thing that does yeah. not work or does <laughs> that he doesn't bear much examination is the fact that without George, Mary could marry nobody. Yeah, not Sam Wainwright, she, hee-haw, nothing. He, she's just she, going to. Yep, she's going to she be a librarian. Up, yep, she ends up with that horrible fate of being <laughs> a librarian and wearing. Glasses. And sensible shoes. No! <laughs> Hell on earth. Yeah, so apparently if George wasn't born, her eyesight would be terrible. Yes, also, <laughs> if George weren't born that Christmas Eve, it wouldn't be snowing. Right, well, you know. Uh, yeah, I, I get it. Yeah. I, I get it. And it's, it's one good... of my notes that the logic of George not being born doesn't quite work out, but yeah. we can accept it for the sake of the story. And something I hadn't considered before is... The angel never claims that this is really, actually, truly what would happen. It could all be a lie. Just or it could George... be what might have happened. I mean, right. Or what was more likely. But so I, it's fine. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, it, I, I, it's nitpicking, and I get it too. But no, with, I, it's I also have to point so out times. when Mar- Mary is a little girl, and her fleece was white as snow. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> that's just how it sounded. I, I gotta say, it's kind of unpleasant of her to slut shame little Violet, because <laughs> that's what she does. You like every boy. What's wrong with that? Well, and you know, and here's go the thing Violet. I like, you know, well, yeah, that's the thing I like about that scene is she says that, and <laughs> you know, they're only twelve, and if that, and later on, it's obvious that Violet's pretty choices still were the <laughs> same way. She likes men. Yeah, and yeah. the essence is, what is wrong with that? And the nice thing is, for the most part, the film doesn't portray that as being a bad thing. Except toward the end, where she's preparing to leave town. Well, my feeling was is that she was leaving town because it was getting to the point where she felt she was going to have to be that kind of person and didn't want to be. Oh, okay. I thought it was because she, her reputation was ruined or some such, and people well, were talking. And they It is small-town America, you know? It's true. But in essence, there's nothing wrong with a woman liking to have sex with men. Because let's face it, the idea of women having to be virgins or even a guy having to be virgin is dumb. Because yeah. anybody you're ha- going to have sex with, if they've had it before, they're going to be better at it. Yeah, do you really <laughs> want uh, someone who has no idea what they're doing? Oh, excuse really? me, I don't know where this goes. Okay, <laughs> if that's your yeah. idea of fun, whatever. Yeah, but yeah. I, but I yeah, actually but... like. I liked her answer. I thought little Violet's answer was great. <laughs> 
Gloria Graham is awesome as uh, as Violet, but we'll get to that. Let's get to the acting. Let's get to the big ones. Well, let's start off with Donna Reed. Donna oh, yeah. Reed is is she's playing a character that I think a lot of people overlook. Yeah, and she's doing it very well. This is her first starring role, and she just comes out swinging. She does she's a great. T- job. She is terrific in this, and you're right. She's mainly there as a support for George. She's she's uh, a secondary in some ways, but. She is very much a character unto herself. Well, and she's not even a secondary. This is about the most equal partnership for a man and women's marriage I've seen depicted anywhere in this era. Because they talk about he's off doing this job that he hates, that he never wanted to do, and he has to do to bring yeah. money home. And she's at home rebuilding a house Yeah, from rebuilding basically an nothing. absolute wreck of a house by herself, as far as we can mm-hmm. tell. And, and she's, put, you know... Fixing the walls and who knows what else. I don't, she may be rewiring the place. We don't know. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me. No. That's the thing I like about Mary is she's shown as being very competent, very capable. Yeah. yeah. And there's never a question about it either. She just does it. And that's what I really like about her and I like about the performance. There's a real strength coming from Donna Reed. We don't doubt for a second that she can do whatever she puts her mind to. I mean, heck, yeah. when she's 12, she's decided she wants to marry George. And, and she sticks she with it. Yeah. yeah. And and George never doubts for a minute that she can do anything. There's never no. a, oh, I got to keep this from Mary or I've got to, you know, Mary couldn't handle this. It's like, nope. I think it's once she winged that window, that was it. She's like, wow, she yeah. can do that. She could do anything. And then later on, when it's during the war, she's still raising four kids, but she's out there doing the USO thing where she's yep. shoving jelly into donuts or donuts into people. <laughs> what? I don't know. <laughs> well, that's yep, what they do, isn't it? <laughs> George is being an air raid warden. Turn yep. out that light! <laughs> so I, I think she not only does a great job, but I think there's a lot of very positive aspects to her character. Yes, she's in a traditional role, but she's also kind of Bob Vila. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right? Yep. She's this doing old all this stuff, and she's being relied upon in a way that, yes, it might be a little thankless, but it's also with utter confidence. I never get, the, like you said, I never get the impression that George thinks twice about asking her or relying on her to do and anything. She is very much part of his life. When we see the Martinis move going into their new house, she's right there with George, and yep. they're acting as if she's had just as much to do with it as he did. And at the end, when they've collected all the money, she's the one who goes, Mr. Martini, how about some wine? <laughs> yep. She's the organizer. Now, I really like her character, and I like Donna yep. Reed's performance a lot. Um, well, I'll get to Jimmy Stewart. Here he is. Jimmy yeah. Stewart. Uh, uh, this is one of those things where sometimes you find out some maybe darker aspects of the making of a film, and it can ruin it for you. In this case... I just think it adds to it. Definitely. When you find out what he was channeling, what he was using and going through Mm -hmm. to bring to this character, it really adds a whole other layer, even if uh, the character himself, you know, never served in the war. Right. And Jimmy Stewart's PTSD is on display a couple of times, most notably in that scene we talked about, about him breaking stuff. And man, you know, that's the part of war that basically never shows up in movies it's the oh i came back and i'm whole you know i still have all my limbs that's nice but that you don't come back the same person they've done that more recently but yeah for the vast majority of films about uh, war they don't really do that they there's some hinting at that in the best years of our lives yeah but uh you don't see a lot of it And and jimmy stewart that's one of the things that makes the character so interesting sure george bailey is a saint in a lot of ways yeah you know he is, you know, doing. He's doing good. He's a man of principle and very strong character. He's also got a lot of repressed anger. Yeah, he's he's really an example and a victim of toxic male masculinity in a lot of ways. Because he can't. He's never been trained or never allowed to show his emotions, and so they just build up until they he explodes. And you know that's the way things were. So. The fact that it comes out, I think, is actually really, really cool. But yeah. he's still got a real range, even, never mind his career, because he is like royalty of the golden age of Hollywood. Jimmy yeah. Stewart, Henry Fonda, those kind of he, people. He is an icon of the movies, there's no question. And he has a great range across his career, but he has a great range in this film, too. There's his funny moments, there's his tender moments, there's that those moments where, I, I think this is one of your favorite scenes, where they're on the phone. Oh boy! When and, he when he and Mary are on the phone talking to Sam Wainwright, and he mm-hmm. is he has been a jerk to her the whole evening. 
because he's really angry when he finds out that he's still going to be stuck because Harry's got a better job. He's going to be stuck at the building alone. He doesn't want that. He goes to see her. She's so happy to see him, and he just treats her like crap. Because he can't and deal with his emotions. He, yeah, because he can't, it's, he's taking out his anger on her. And then when they're talking to Sam Wainwright, who her mother really wants her to, to uh, marry. <laughs> I am but, not! Yep, mother's <laughs> listening on the extension. Yeah. And where they're on the phone, they keep getting closer and closer. And the tension mm. between them. The, I mean, I, for ni- it's 1946, but the tension is incredibly erotic. And the way they just keep staring at each other, or he tries not to look at her and he can't, and then just grabs her. Yeah. It's really intense, and it's it's amazing, and it's incredibly romantic. Yeah, it's it's frightening, too, but I think it's a question of him finally letting out his frustrations and her finally realizing where they're coming from. Because when he finds out that Harry has been given this job offer by this new wife whom Harry hasn't told anybody about. Yes. Yeah, surprise. There isn't an instant where George goes, well, that's not fair. He said he'd take over because yeah. Harry even offers. He's like, I never said I'd take that job, George. And George, you can see yeah. there's not even, no, he's going to take the job. He it's has a better to. job. He should, he should have it. He Somebody asks the wife out. about it briefly. Yeah. Uh, whose name I do not remember. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> I don't know if she has though. one. She's, she does. Yeah, she's Ruth. I think it's Ruth. Ruth. Oh, that's it. Ruth. Thank you. Ruth. Ruth. <laughs> I, you know, and then the, and George is always, no matter what, he puts other people first. He really just, and he has this intelligence. We we hear this. There's uh, circumstantial evidence. There's models and, and plans that he's doing in the he background. He has talent. And we've been told he's really smart and he never gets a chance to do it. And he's aching to do something with it. But just some of the things he just offhandedly does in that same phone call, he basically employs half the town. Yeah, because, just with a throwaway remark. Yeah, Sam Ranwright calls up and he's like, hey, you know, I'm going to start this plastics thing. You should get in on it. We're going to open up a factory in Rochester. And out of for no reason at all, except George is who he is, it doesn't even occur to him that it's a thing. He says, well, why Rochester? Well, why not? Well, there's that, you know, old tool and die company that broke down years ago put half the town at a business just outside bedford falls you could get that for nothing and you know all the labor you want and sam's like oh yeah oh well, let's do that yeah that's Rental. like oh yep. nothing no he just employed <laughs> half the town yeah and then you know all the, the houses that he builds for people and the problem is is that george is only able to see it one house at a time one person at a time he doesn't realize the enormity, and that's what causes him to. And of course, yeah. being toxically male, asking for help is not a thing. You can't do that. And even at the end, when brother, or brother, when Uncle Billy loses the eight thousand dollars because Uncle Billy's Uncle an Bill. idiot. <laughs> Uncle Billy's a friggin' moron. And I'm sorry, Mr. Potter was right. Peter Bailey, Pa Bailey, was not a businessman because no. all he does is hire his relatives. And okay, cousin Eustace and. Because until he, because everyone at the Bailey building alone is a relative. Right. They seem, we don't see them screw anything up. Uncle Billy is a disaster. Yeah. Yeah. And he's portrayed Stringy. as a stereotypical drunk Irish guy. Yes, he's a funny drunk. This is back when chronic alco- alcoholism was hilarious. Well, not to be fair, we only see him drink once. No, we, we see him. Understand. Oh no, we see him a couple of times. We see him when Harry is announcing, and we see when there's about to be a run on the bank, and he's locked himself inside, and he's oh. chugging down from his flask. We see mm. him drink a few times, but it's usually under moments of stress. So we yeah. don't know he's an alcoholic, but we know do know he likes to drink, and we do um, know in the other real reality he ends up in an insane asylum. My wild Irish rose, <laughs> I'm all right. I'm all right. And by the way, that was actually not planned. <laughs> No, he actually tripped over something. And then uh, there was a sound effects man who actually knocked something over. Uh, yeah. And he got bonus points from that from Frank Capra. So. <laughs> yeah, but but George, I think he, he actually hates his own morals because it doesn't they don't allow him to do the things he wants, but he also really never goes back on them. And that's why the movie works is because he's a good man. He's on the other side of the good, coin. Yeah. We have Mr. Potter, played by Lionel Barrymore. (laughs) And Lionel Barrymore, talking about performances, Lionel Barrymore tended to play like patriarchal, kind of warm, fatherly types. Or in his younger days, you know, master of the stage, he was the lead. He didn't usually, he didn't play a lot of bad guys. And 
He grabs the bit in his <laughs> teeth, and he is just, ooh, you want to smack him. Happy New Year to you in jail. In jail. <laughs> oh, great line. <laughs> he's <sighs> Even when he first shows up, he's in a carriage. Everyone right. else, people are driving cars, and his carriage looks like a damn hearse. Yeah, and it's got, you know, HP on it. Have and he has his team. silent bodyguard with him. Who's always oh. dressed exactly the same way he is. Yeah, and ne- doesn't have a single line. No. And that goes for you, too. <laughs> it's a great moment, but he I does kind an of amazing thinking, I felt kind of bad for the guy. It's like, what did I do? He worked for Potter. Yeah. Yeah. And, oh, he is just, and he is absolutely embraces his vileness. So he, he says, I'm, I'm aware people hate me. That's all right. I don't like any of them either. Well, and here's the really interesting part to me is that Mr. Potter too perfectly represents today's conservatives. The whole idea yeah. of like, I sh- I'm rich, I deserve to be rich. Yeah. And, and, and we should be else. helping people. Yeah. As he's, he refers to everyone else, like the people who go to the bail- building alone as like the rabble, yeah. the mob, garlic the gar- eaters. garlic eaters. Yeah. Which I got to tell you, uh, I don't have a problem with that because maybe Mr. Potter's never had food with, with what's the word flavor in it. Yeah. <laughs> Garlic's amazing. What is your problem? Yeah. I, yeah, he really rings true, which is prescient and frightening at the same yeah. time. Yeah, it'd be nice to think that people like him stopped existing, but oh boy. No, and some of them own social media. Oops! Yes, and some of them ran for president. Yeah, and it's just like, he, in a way you could say, well, he's a cartoon villain, right? Where's the damsel he ties to the railroad tracks? <laughs> if he had a mustache in this, he would have been twirling it. Yeah, but it doesn't matter because it's... We unfortunately have found that these cartoon characters can come to life. Yeah, they can be quite. And the thing is, he's not. Over, he is very restrained in his performance. Mm. He's not like. <laughs> he's very nasty in some ways. Like when George is begging him for help at the yeah. end, which you can see just kills yeah. George. Doesn't have the eight thousand dollars. Potter has it. Potter knows exactly what happened to it. Mm. It's again just another. And the odd thing is, even that, it's not like he did something. It's by lack of action that he that he does something. And he is just rubbing it in George's face. But even then, he's not yelling. No. He's just smiling. And he is enjoying the hell out of it. Yeah. The thing is, I, I didn't realize this, but technically, Mr. Potter is embezzling funds because he's a stockholder of the building and loan. And yeah. so by... Holding on to funds that belong that he knows belong to the building and loan, and not put giving them back, he's technically embezzling. Never mind finders keepers, but yeah. So I, the three of them, are the standouts in this film. We have other characters as oh, well. Yeah. We have Ward Bond as Bert the cop, who's, <laughs> who's, who's perfectly terrific. lovable. Yep, and even Uncle Billy. Yep, he's he's really well done. I mean, every character in this is utterly believable as who they are, be they from the you know, idyllic small town America or not, uh, or a set. <laughs> Apparently they shot this in the summer. So there are wow. scenes where George is like shivering and sweating. He's not shivering. He is sweating because it's literally <laughs> like 90 degrees. Yeah. And again, like I said, Gloria Graham, who plays uh, Violet, who we know from Oklahoma as Ada Annie. Oh, is that who she is? Okay. Yeah. And she was also in The Greatest Show on Earth. She's done a lot of stuff. She is terrific. She always has this sort of, not quite sneer, but this, yeah, I know what's going on, and you have no clue. Devil may care, too. Yeah. She's like, I'm yeah. having a great time. Why should I? I don't care what you think. I don't care what people are saying about me. Yep. Yeah. And she's she's terrific. Uh, Nick, the bartender. Well, that's Sheldon Leonard. So Sheldon uh, Leonard, this is funny. Sheldon Leonard only agreed to do this movie because he needed uh, money for baseball tickets. <laughs> Seriously. Seriously. (laughs) Sheldon Leonard is actually better known as a a producer. He actually was a very successful television producer and produced such shows as Dick Van Dyke, I Dream of Genie, among many others. And he has got that voice that is just like, and he played a lot of gangsters, but he has that New York gangster voice. Out you two pixies, go true to door out the window. And he says true, Uh not because he's overdoing anything. That's just the way he talks. Yep. He's terrific. 
And where do you get off calling me Nick? Nick, oh, and we don't need no characters around hanging around to give the place atmosphere. Give the joint atmosphere. The joint, excuse me, atmosphere. <laughs> yeah, no, he's a little bit part, but he stands out. I mean, yep. and the guy playing Clarence, he's... Oh, yeah, Travers, uh, Henry Travers, I think. Yeah, he is lovable. Um, he's, he's, a, he's a cartoon a bit, but he is adorable. He also has some... He has some great lines. I still like when they've been thrown out of the bar, and he's he's looking up, saying, "How am I doing, Joseph?" No, I didn't have a drink. That's <laughs> <laughs> not a nice little throwaway. Yeah, nice how he's described in the early part of the film. He has uh, the IQ of a rabbit. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Joseph is a jerk. He really. I don't know if he's supposed to be Joseph, as in the father, you know, the or the stepfather of. Uh, of Jeebus, but yeah. or if he's just you know as he as he is known the patron saint of children's aspirin, <laughs> but uh, he's really mean to Clarence. He yeah. keeps you know where well, I can't see. Oh, I forgot you don't have your wings yet. Yet you knew that you were just talking about him. <laughs> you refer to him as the one who doesn't have his wings yet. Come yeah. on, Joseph, really, Joe, you're a jerk. Yep. So the acting in this film ranges from. I'm going to say good, not even adequate. I'm going to say yeah. good to excellent. Yeah. yeah, there is no, there are no bad performances in this. There, even the kids are, yeah. are are good. The kid who's playing George, young George, oh, that the way and wonderful way, like you just said, that Violet Beck goes. What's wrong with that? <laughs> just the scene with him and Mr. Gower, with oh, Mr. Yeah. When he, who for some reason keeps an enormous jar of poison. <laughs> On his on the the workbench in his pharmacy, yeah, because you, you know, might you need that need, being yep, a pharmacist. <laughs> yep, you never you can never have too much poison. Yeah, poison. But um, when when the kid is like, I I know you're sad, Mister Gower. I know your son died. Oh, please don't hit my sore ear. Yeah, uh, it's and then when Gower realizes it was he was right. It's so heartbreaking. Yeah, it is. And then, of course, you know, George won't tell anybody. Yeah, and he um, never does. Speaking of wondering about that poison, I have a question. Yeah? How do they get books in heaven? Oh, you mean why, uh, Clarence, Clarence wandering around with a copy of uh, Tom, Tom Sawyer? Sawyer? Yeah. My uh, <laughs> guess is it's overdue at the I library. <laughs> There's a very annoyed library somewhere. Yeah, in the uh, alternate future, yeah. It's I, from, I don't know, Heavenly Library. I don't know. <laughs> well, and the weird part is that Clarence, I looked this up, Clarence was born, I think, it's 1673. So, like, almost 200 years before Mark Twain. Well, no, about 100 years. No, no, yeah, you're right. No, no, no 1673, 200. yeah, 200 years. So, uh, why? and then at one point he even says, you know, you should see the books that uh, he's writing these days. And it's like... Which freaks the bridge keeper out for some reason. The bridge keeper is oddly terrified of Clarence. Yeah. Yeah, and he'll be 200 and whatever on my next birthday. I'm getting out of here. Oh, okay. <laughs> this harmless old coot thinks he's an angel. Ah! Yeah, there's the weak performance, and it's all in the direction, because we don't... Yeah. Like, he didn't Doesn't even have sense. to be there. It's like, he could have said, I'm going to go get you guys something else to wear, and Lee yeah. left, but I guess they wanted a comedic moment before yeah. George gets his wish, as it were. I, I got another question. Why is there a squirrel in Uncle Billy's office? Um, Uncle Billy has some really interesting pets, including yeah. a monkey, and I forget there's something else in there, too. Some monkey, oh yeah. There's a monkey, a crow, Doing a monkey squirrel. Things. Well, the squirrel actually jumps up and kind of comforts him. It's That's like, kind of cute. Although like I said, this about the actor, he seems totally at home with all of these pets. Yeah, doesn't bother him. The bird lands on his shoulder, he doesn't blink. Well, Jimmy the Crow is a pro. He, he True. knows when to go. You can so. work with anyone. Yeah, tells you when the phone's ringing, all that stuff. Yep. Um... Even though they won an Academy Award for it, I got to say the snow ranges from really to okay. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> you know, yeah. really hard to do on camera. I mean, the wet slushy stuff looks like wet slushy stuff. I'll yeah. give them that. But the stuff that is like when it starts snowing on the bridge and it's sticking to George and nothing's melting. <laughs> it's like, or when they hmm. fall in the snowbank and the snowbank goes fuff like yeah. feathers. Yeah, you know, eh, whatever. There's a few yeah, things you just yeah. got to sort of look sideways yep. at. but That's a thing of the time. One of the other things this film has is some great quotes. Uh, Youth is wasted on the wrong people. Why don't you kiss her <laughs> instead of talking her to death? Oh, so many so many great things. You know, He's making violent love to me, love mother. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say a man making 40 a week, 45. <laughs> 
45, 45. <laughs> yeah, I, it's there's a whole bunch of things that just, I'm sure we've been quoting them. We've been singing Buffalo Gals or Buffalo yep. Squid, if you will. <laughs> uh, won't you come out tonight for a long time? Because cause I've never heard of that song otherwise. And there's just some interesting aspects to this one. Like I was saying that Mr. Potter rings very true. But when the when there's a run on the bank, that's actually a metaphor for the yeah. financial situation of the whole country at the time. Yep. And although the big bank crash was a few, I think it was supposed to be 1932 when that oh, happened. Also, it would have been three years earlier. That wasn't a bank crash. That was the stock market. But that affected, that cascaded onto the banks. Right. You yeah. have to wonder what, like, where was Mr. Potter's wealth tied up in? Because, like, how is he not affected, but he wasn't? Bec no, no, that was the thing. If you had money, it only affected you if you had to sell stuff because the prices dropped. If you stayed calm and didn't panic sell, you came through it okay. Mm. Yeah. The problem is so many people were in on the stock. Well, anyway, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. This movie flirts heavily with the idea of fate. Yeah. From the beginning, it seems like George's course well, is decided. Well... The idea that, well, it's decided, you got to remember, the people who are talking about it are looking backwards. They know what's going to happen. They well, know because it's already happened. So, in effect, it's determined. But Well, but then we look at the alternate future, and then we see all the things that would happen if George wasn't there. Right. But then, of course, we still have that element of free choice at the end. George can decide not to throw himself off the bridge, and that's the whole point. He also could have point. decided at any time to leave Bedford Falls. The re he wasn't kept there by fate. No. He was kept there by his own convictions and his own morals, and because mm. he couldn't not do that. It was who he was. That, again, is what makes him so relatable. He's not a paragon of virtue because... He's angry about this. It's like, yes, I know I have to stay because, again, that's not just, that's part of the masculinity. I'm the firstborn son. Mm. I have to carry on. I have to do this because who am I going to leave it with? Uncle Dipstick over there? Because that's just <laughs> not, the place would be on fire in 20 minutes. Yeah. And he's mad about it. He resents it. And that resentment comes out in, in terrifying ways. When he gets, when he confronts Uncle Billy about losing the money, that's just both terrifying and it just breaks your heart because there is, on some level, yeah, I totally get it. Of course you want to scream at Uncle Billy. Uncle Billy's an idiot. One of us is going to jail and jail it's not going to be me. Gonna be me. Oh, Except and Uncle Billy is so, is so harmless and he's yeah. like a child almost. Yeah. And But you totally get it, but it's also scary how, how suddenly George goes into a rage. And again, that's, some of it is, I think, uh, as you said, Jimmy Stewart's PTSD experience, he's channeling that, but some of it is a good man who's just, he's pushed too far. He's, his life was not what he wanted it to be, and he can't take it anymore. But he's also surrounded by people that don't have the same fortitude that he does. Yeah. Not saying he, they're bad people. No, but he's stronger. He yeah. is much stronger, and let's face it, he's a purer spirit. And that's well, really hard to be in the real world. And, you know, it's often said that some of the people who make the best leaders are the ones who don't want to. Yeah, yeah. And for one, better or for worse, George is a leader of his community. He just doesn't understand that and the extent of that until the end of the film. Because that's the thing. It's all been happening in little bits and pieces. He doesn't see the whole picture. He just no. sees, like, here, this here, this there, until the end. Yeah. You know. Now, we do have a couple of characters, or one or two characters, that are a little problematic. Yeah. yeah. Annie the maid? Oh, yeah. Again, the basically, oh, she's part of the family. Yeah, but she's not. Because, you know, <laughs> she's, a, she's a black woman in right. this tiny town. She is one of about three black people in Bedford Falls. Well, in, in this Bedford Falls. In, in other words, is a lot more, so whatever oh, that means. yeah, yeah. Um, I also had a problem, of course, is a scene where Harry slaps her in the ass, which is yeah. like, really, really? Yeah, except that didn't bother me because I'm pretty sure Eddie could beat the crap out of him. And he yeah, knows it's, that. It's the disrespect. That it I was is, just yeah. Like, mm. Yeah, that's a little, that's awkward. She does have the, a great line at the end though. Here, I was saving this for a divorce in any case I ever got a husband. Um, <laughs> she, the other, she's the fun. one who I have a little trouble with is Mr. Martini. Because uh, all I, it's a me, Mr. Martini. Mm. He's, he's not quite, because at least he's not making pizza or anything or. No, he is named Martini and he has a bar named Martini. 
martinis. Martinis, yeah, well. I, I actually just found him to be an immigrant, and I actually like the fact that they treat him as an equal. I don't find him really... He's got an accent. Honestly, that's all he's got. Yeah. I don't really see the whole... Like, he doesn't have any money. He's got a lot of kids, and he's got I busted the jukebox! Yeah. No, I have no... I don't really have any problem with Miss Martini. I don't feel like he's being played for laughs at all. Especially at the end when, like, George is at the bar, and he's like, No, Mr. Bailey, don't you go! No, 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 he really cares for him. Yeah, he's so upset. Yeah, so I I don't have any... All right, And she's borderline, too, because... Yeah, she's a black woman and she's a maid. And I might be able to just dismiss the whole thing if we hadn't watched The Help. Because yeah. that whole Viola Davis uh, series, we yeah. did, which I'm glad I watched. Because I can look at things like this and go, yeah, maybe we could have some black women who just lived on their own. Yeah. And didn't need to be a maid for somebody. Wouldn't that be better? Cause it's, it's a, a maid or a secretary, like yeah. Yeah. But we should uh, get to our, our, our poll question, yeah. our uh, series question. And this is one I think that we can actually definitively answer. Yeah. Would this movie have worked or been better in color? Well, we know this for a fact. <laughs> no. <laughs> Tell them. Tell them. <laughs> so, this film was colorized three times. Oof. One of them was when uh, the first colorization process was coming around. And there was this weird thing where, for a while, everyone thought this movie had fallen into the public domain. And I mean yeah. everybody. Yeah, it was like in the 70s, I think. Yeah, this is when it started showing up on every... Uh, there was one point, I swear, ABC, CBS, and NBC were all they were showing all it. all showing it. And then all the cable channels would show yep. it every at, at Christmas. It was on... 24 hours a day at some... Somebody pointed that out during the Christmas season. Yep. There were a few points it was literally... You could turn on the TV and you would find it at any time of the day. Yeah, it turned out that actually wasn't true. Yeah, yeah, but I got that wrong. one of the people that wanted to colorize it first, figuring they didn't have to pay any royalties, contacted the still-living Frank Capra and said, hey, we want to do this, and he was all for it. Really? Oh. Really. And then... Sad. The the boom dropped, and they're like, uh, that's not free. You don't. Yeah. And they were like, all right, we're going to cancel this deal. And Frank Capper turned around and said, yeah, let's not do that. That's a bad idea. And of course, he didn't really have a say in the matter, and eventually it came out. I was watching the first nine minutes, I think, on YouTube this morning. There, somebody had posted an HD copy. So this is one of the later huh. processes, a better version of it. Really nice print, very sharp. No. Yeah, does it's not necessary. It's not I necessary. Mean, it looks yeah. bad. I wouldn't say this is like one of the greatest examples of uh, black and white cinematography, but mm. it's really good. Mm -hmm. There are some really nice uses. One of my favorite shots, and it's incredibly powerful, is in the Potterville universe mm -hmm. when George goes to his, what he thinks is his house, which is a ruin at this point, mm. and he's clambering around in the rubble, and Ernie the cab driver aims the spotlight from his cab on him, and it looks like a prison escape move. And George is scrabbling around like an animal in the center of this this bright light and surrounded by darkness. It's really effective. Yeah. There's a lot of scenes. Him on the bridge, there's a real great sense of darkness. Uh, and, you know, I never thought twice about Bedford Falls being a set up until... I read about it. I was like, really? Yeah. It's a, it's like either it's a back lot or it's in some town somewhere. Cause it looks exactly like upstate New York or new England, those old, you know, main streets. Cause we had one. Oh yeah. Our, ours was Moody street and we had the Grover Cronin department store as opposed to the Emporium. Actually we had a Woolworths too. And a, a theater right across the street called the embassy, which got torn down and then came back. <laughs> but you know, it's for us, especially that's exactly how it felt. You know, you went downtown, and during Christmas, all the yep. decorations it had, were... It had the look. They got the look perfectly, and you didn't need color for that. Yeah, and the colorization, I've never seen an example, never, where it looked good. It still looks like it's black and white underneath. The colors just don't read true, so no. But we're getting to that point where we should yep. probably uh, decide, or at least we've decided, let our, our listeners know, do we still think this film has any value? The finish. So Max. Nope. Damn it. <laughs> nope. Someday. Now, this, there's no point in asking you when the first time you saw this was. Oh, God, yeah. No I idea. don't know. I have no idea. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was on TV. Yeah, I don't oh, think yeah. it was in a theater. Ooh, have I ever seen this in a theater? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure I have either. I don't think so. 
don't think I think it's always been on TV. Sometimes it was on broadcast or cable or mm. on a VHS tape. So you've seen it many, many times. You've many seen it times. over and over, but maybe you haven't looked at it the same way you do like we do now because we're doing yeah, the show. I've watched it in a few years. You know? Yeah, I don't know about you, but I tend to be a little bit more critical. I tend to pay a yeah. little bit more attention. There's different context. History is different. This was a long time ago. This is yeah. almost 76 years ago. Yep. So, Max, does yeah. it hold up? Oh, God, yes. <laughs> I love this movie. I love this movie. This movie makes me cry every time, multiple times. Yeah. Oh, when at the end, when they're dumping the money on the table, and he's just that look of absolute delight, surprise, I lose it every time. You wait I that love- long? <laughs> no, no, when uh, he's with Mr. Gower, okay. and uh, Mr. Gower's hugging him, I usually cry then, too. Yeah. Oh, uh, and just the joy he shows when he realizes he's back in his timeline, world, whatever. Even when he comes to his car, which is wrapped around a tree, and just throws his arms in the air to yells, Yay! <laughs> Merry Christmas, movie house! Merry, yeah. Merry uh, Christmas! That just, oh, yeah. No, this, this movie is a winner for me. This is... It's it's a part of Christmas. It's a part of my film heritage. What about you? You also don't remember, but I'm sure you've seen it a hundred times. Seventies, probably same thing. TV. Yeah. yeah. I it, I think we had a VHS copy in the early eighties because uh-huh. everybody did. I think it just came with the VCR. <laughs> Here's the thing, and I'm going to get a lot of hate mail for this. This movie is a big bowl of cornbread. The world's not like this. I'm not sure if there was like, no, I can't do it. I love this film. <laughs> yeah. This film Holmes is a very special place for me because my mom used to go to uh, the midnight services. Actually, she was part of them. She was the religious one of our family. My sister and I weren't. And I used to stay up and wait for her and I would watch this. I would either put it in or I would find it on TV because it wasn't hard. So this is connected with memories of my mom as well. But it's nice, and I like nice. I cry when it's sad, but I also cry when they're happy because yep. I like to see people happy. There are great performances in this. Yes, it's a little Norman Rockwell. So what? You yeah, know, it's an idealized version of uh, small town America, but so ideals are nice. Well, and why can't we have a little bit more niceness? And yeah, like we said in the beginning, I'm sorry, Mr. Capper, this is a Christmas movie. You can yeah. say it's not, but why would you show this in the summer? Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it is. And yes, they're singing All Light Anxiety at the end, but they do sing a Christmas carol before that. And little Janie is playing. Yeah, uh, Hark the Herald Angels, yeah. yep. So, uh, yeah. And if just, you, it's so moving and so touching at the end. I just, I just love how everyone comes in, you know, the pre- the head of the high school comes in, like, dumps his wallet. I woke up the alumni out of bed, and he hands his gold watch to Zuzu. Here's something for you to play with. Yeah. <laughs> and even the, the sheriff who has the warrant for his arrest just tears it up and starts singing with everyone else. And it's like, I, you know... I can't help but... Sorry, yeah? Is it realistic? No, but wouldn't it be nice if it was? I also can't help asking... Sam Wainwright just calls and says... Or telegrams and says... Uh, you know, I, I'm, my office is instructed to send, you know, advance you up to $25,000. Does that mean, why don't the other people take their money back? Because Sam can afford an $8,000 loan a lot more easily than these guys can. Well, you know, maybe it's that time where they said, you know, he has done all these things for us. This is where we get to do something for him. And yeah. as we pointed out, George would never ask for help. Yep. Even at the end where he tells Billy, Uncle Billy, you're the one going to jail. It's we know that's not true because even we we know that's true because when he goes to Potter to beg for money and he says, I lost $8,000. And Potter is like, oh, you did. Because he knows it was Uncle Billy. Yeah. And he realizes George is t- going to take the blame. Man, I hate that moment. When I see Uncle Billy put the money in the paper, I just... Oh, (laughs) So angry. Every time. I know what's coming. I know how it's going to end, but I always just want to reach through the screen and go, No! (laughs) Give me that paper! Yeah. So if you haven't watched it in a while or you've missed it this season or whatever, Uh, do yourselves a favor. Seriously. It's two hours. It's over two hours. It is one of the best paced over two-hour films I've ever watched. You never feel like it's two hours and ten minutes. No, no. I, I rarely see, usually there's there's moments in films where it gets a little slow or something, but I am always interested. Yep. Even though I've seen this however many times. 
it just passes. It's it's well acted. It's well done. It does not get old. No, it does not. Even if things are very out of date, just just yep. go ahead. Give yourselves yeah. a moment and just enjoy it. But we should also enjoy a new poll question. Yes, indeed. So we got lots of answers last week, and I know we have this big holiday this week. That I, I don't uh, know what it is, but Arbor Day, something like that. I, I think it's Mac and Cheese Eve. That's what it is. Ah, uh, there we but go. If you would do us a favor and tell us what your favorite holiday movie is, whatever the holiday is, it could be April Fool's Day. I'm sure there's a special out there somewhere. <laughs> but uh, do so, and uh, you can tell us by emailing us directly at us at maxmikemovies.com or go to the website, maxmikemovies.com, where we have places you can leave comments. And you can give comments. You can give us feedback about an episode, about a movie, give us ideas for shows, ideas Please, for Please, we like season. your idea. We like ideas. Yeah, by all means, just go ahead and, and uh, write up comments. Talk to other people who are making comments. You can find us on one social media because you haven't told us another one we should go to. We're on Facebook at Max Mike Movies. And hey, if you have a podcast app, I'm sure we're there. We stopped counting. We can't list them all. But if you like podcasts, we're out there. And it's, of course, Max Mike Movies. But yep, but. like all good things, Monochrome must come to an end. And that will end next week with what film, Max? Well... I'd like to quote uh, from my favorite Christmas text. Uh, I believe it's John 3.18. Klaatu barada nikto. <laughs> Which yes, we, we are going I, to... Be, I think it... Doesn't that translate as Michael Rennie was ill the day the earth stood still? But he did tell us where we stand. Oh, oh, stand in the place where we live. Yep, now face north. Uh, no, now face west. Oh, right. Hey, Stipe, <laughs> give us a break. Give me some dinner. <laughs> Is that so, you in the corner? Now, it, <laughs> yes, we are going to check out a black and white sci- science fiction classic, The Day the Earth Stood Stupid. I mean, The Day the Earth Stood Still. <laughs> stood Sorry, the Day the Earth Stood Stupid is an episode of Futurama. Ah, uh, well, a science fiction from how good could that be? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, and if the that's Earth right. Stood Still, wouldn't we fly off suddenly into space? Very fast, and the atmosphere would rip off, and everyone would die. So this movie is actually only about a minute and a half long. Oh, well, so yeah. tune in next week when the Earth <laughs> stands still, and you'll see if we fly off into space. This has been a co-production of The Voice of Max and The Movie Wrench. 